This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Our modern world is a battlefield of apps, atomization, and anxiety. Psychiatrist Anders Hansen is massively famous in his native Sweden for his evidence-based advice on how to fight back, and his two best-selling books on the subject are now out in English. They are The Attention Fix and The Happiness Cure. He sat down with Luke Naylor Perrett to tell us more. Anders, it's it's a big question, but let's set the scene. Okay, so so what is the current mental health landscape post COVID in twenty twenty three? Let's let's get some context here. Well, that's a big question, as you said. And in Sweden, one point one million individuals are being prescribed antidepressant medication, which means that more than one in eight adults are being prescribed that today. Does that mean that we are worse off, that we're feeling worse than we used to? Well, that's a very, very difficult question to answer, actually, because it's difficult to measure these things over time. You can't just look at how many packages of of antidepressants are being prescribed, because that could be due to doctors are more willing to prescribe it and so on. But what stands clear from a number of different studies is that teenagers, especially girls, are definitely feeling worse than they used to do. And that and that is, and that's a shame, I think, and it's especially sad since we are more and more being prescribed medication, more and more are given therapists, and so on and so forth. So I think the conclu- my conclusion of all this is it's that we're definitely feeling worse than we ought to do, given how how good things are, because. We have a ter- terrible war in Europe. We should not forget about that. But apart from that, uh, most of us uh, live in, in peaceful countries and uh, we have never been healthier or wealthier, actually, than in, at any point in the history of our species. And why then are so many people struggling with their mental health? That's the problem that I've thought so much about. And that's sort of the basics of the problems of these books. And we will get into the why uh, a little bit later, but I think the biggest the biggest why that comes to mind and a sort of core pillar of of the attention fix is new technology, specifically social media, our phones, screens. Let's let's just chat a little bit about that. You you, you ask whether children uh, are the guinea pigs for a new digitized world. Is it just children and young people? Are we all impacted? And 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 how how are we impacted? No, it, it's not on just children and and uh, teenagers. Uh, Attention span has been studied for for at least two decades now uh, by several researchers, 
And 20 years ago, it was about two and a half minutes. And how do you measure that? Well, you have you, you study people when they're working. How often do they switch between things? And that was about two and a half minutes on average before they switched to new tasks. And by and 10 years ago, it was down to 75 seconds. And 2021, it has contracted to 47 seconds. So it seems that our attention is just being eroded. And I think that the reason for that is that there is a war for our attention. And that war is being conducted by tech companies. And they are just getting better and better and better at grabbing that. And that means that we are spending more and more time on our digital devices. And adults spend, on average, about four hours per day on their, on their smartphone. And for teenagers, it's five to six hours. It's actually difficult to measure that because it increases so fast that all these measurements become inaccurate after just a couple of months. And I think this is a, the fastest change that we have ever seen in human behavior in the history of our species. And of course, that raises a very important question. What does this do to us? And that is a question that a couple of years ago was just a big question mark. We did not know that. But now there's been many studies done and it is starting to emerge uh, a picture about the consequences of our digital lifestyle, not only in terms of focus and in terms of productivity, but also in terms of mental health. And as some of the stats that you quote are genuinely chilling, and, and this was from a couple of years ago, so no doubt it's got worse during COVID, but I'll just throw some out here. A quarter of under one-year-olds use the internet, a half of, of under two-year-olds. Seven hours of daily usage is really common for teens in the US. 2,600 touches of phone a day. 50% of under 24s check their phone at least one, once in the middle of the night. This is huge. And then we forget that like these. this book was written before TikTok, which is the yeah. attention fix, you know, extraordinaire. I mean, you must just stare at those, those stats and, and get horrified. Yeah, I, I, and I, you wonder why is this the case? And the reason for this is money. The most valuable thing in today's society is not dollar or euros or pounds or gold. It's yours and mine attention. And there's a war for our attention that's being conducted now that's being fought between tech companies. And just they're just getting better and better at that. And if you compare it to a car company... You know, if they don't make a better and better car, they will get out, get pushed out of the job of the market. But for a technology company such as Facebook or, or Twitter, their product is not a platform that lets us distribute pictures and, and uh, phrases. Their product is our attention. And if they don't get better at picking that, well, then they will be, they'll be pushed out of the market. Uh, so if you've ever tried to reach the customer service at Facebook and you had a problem with that, that's because you are not the customer of Facebook. You are the product of Facebook. And I don't know what you, how much you paid for your phone, but I, was, I, will, I guess it's something around seven or eight hundred pounds, perhaps, if it's a smartphone. And then you pay a subscription every month, perhaps 50 uh, pounds. But that's not the cost. The cost is your time. You spend four, five, six hours per day on this. And that means that you are spending less time on other things. And that is, I think, one of the major consequences on, of our mental health. We don't sleep as much as we used to. We don't move as much as we used to. And by moving, I mean we don't exercise. We, and we don't meet as much in real life. So that means that those 
three pillars of well-being, sleeping, exercising, and meeting in real life, are being eroded in today's society in a way that we have never seen before. We're definitely going to get into all of those a little bit later. We're also going to get into media companies because I have my thoughts. But before we do that, I want to I want to build some context. You talk about the HPA axis. I'd never heard of this. Could you explain why that's so important to both happiness and attention? Explain, you know, why the amygdala is something we should know about, uh, the insula, all of these things, that, you know, that they, they seem very big, but you put it in beautiful words. What is the HPA yeah. axis? So the HPA axis is um, your stress system. It's the, the most central stress system in the body. And the H stands for hypothalamus. That's a part of the brain. The P stands for pituitary gland. That's a, a gland located on the bottom of the brain. Uh, and the A stands for adrenal glands. And they are located on top of your kidneys and they release a hormone called cortisol. Now, when you get stressed, cortisol levels rises in your bloodstream. And what does cortisol do? Well, it mobilizes energy. It makes your heart beat stronger and faster. And everyone has felt, of course, that when you get stressed, your heart rate increases. Now, why is that? Well, that's because stress, from our perspective, is a boss yelling us at us at work or so on. But from an evolutionary perspective, stress means fight and flight. We need to go to attack or run away. That is what stress has been during 99.9% of our time on the planet. And in fact, all animals that have a vertebrae have an HPA axis, and it functions the same way for them as it does for us. Now, from an evolutionary perspective, it's very clear that this system should not be on all the time. It goes on and you go to attack or run away, and then it turns off. And then you go to, you stress, and then you rest. But the problem is that in today's society, we use the same system when we handle psychosocial stress, such as deadlines for an exam or picking up your children from kindergarten or constantly checking our our smartphones and so on. And that means that this system is constantly active and we are paying a big price for that. The most common reason for depressions is long-term stress. Now, you might wonder, why haven't we in our brain, which the brain is very sophisticated, why hasn't it a better system for this? Why does it use this old system that was built to fight or flight uh, for, for, for modern stress? And the point is that the world that we live in is very, very strange uh, for our brains. The most important thing you can learn about humans is that we have not changed during the last 10 or even 20,000 years. Biologically speaking, we are still back on the savanna. The brain thinks that we are living on the savanna. So this world that you and I think is so natural with cars and Tinder apps and refrigerators full of food and airplanes and so on, that's a very, very alien world for the brain to be in. Uh, And these instincts that has been created from the fact that we have lived, that we are still hunters and gatherers, they helped us survive in a world uh, where half of us died before they became teenagers, because that is, has been the case for almost all, pre- all previous generations of humans. Uh, and those instincts helped us survive in that world, but those instincts are now being played out against us in many ways. And in and, and some of these ways, uh, some of these instincts are being exploited by tech companies in, in, in our modern society. And I think we need to be aware of these facts 
The most important thing I never learned in med school was exactly this, that we have not changed during the last 10,000 years, that we are still hunters and gatherers. It's a really powerful message. You said at one point there, um, we have to be aware of the facts, and we do. But also, a key message of both of your books is that, quote, feelings are survival strategies. Now, I, I don't know about you, but there is a a popular idea that you know we should be logical and that facts don't care about your feelings and yours is a refreshing counterbalance so could you just explain from a psychiatric point of view from a, from a scientific point of view why we should care about feelings yeah so we don't have feelings to uh, for for to, there to give us a rich inner lives we have feelings because they push our behavior in ways that helped our ancestors to survive if we are hungry, we want to we, we make sure to eat. If we are bored, we make sure to do something. If we are feel lonely, we make we, we make sure to, to meet someone and so on. So feelings are there to take care of, of our biological needs. And feelings of well-being means that you stop striving. You don't continue to, to push yourself. And for almost all previous generations of humans, if you stopped striving, you died of starvation. So feelings of well-being should be short-term. They should soon go up in smoke. Otherwise, they would not fulfill their task, uh, so to speak. And a way to illustrate this is to think of a woman, an ancestor of ours, she's standing below a banana tree and she's, she's climbing up and she's picking the bananas and she, when she comes down, she becomes happy. That feels great. You know, she eats them. But how long can she, can she continue to be happy? Well, not too long because if she's happy for two months, then she will die of starvation, basically. So that means that feelings of, short, of happiness should be short-term because our ancestors could never uh, afford themselves to go around being happy. And that's very important to know because in today's society, we are led to believe that we could go on being, that we could walk around and be happy all the time. We, I think we mix up pleasure and happiness. And to expect that you should go around feeling well all the time is not just, it's not possible. We are not built that way as humans. That, that, that is something that we must be more aware of. And as a psychiatrist, I think that's incredibly important to tell my patients that if you have a period of where you feel down or you're anxious and so on, that doesn't mean you're broken. You are not damaged goods. Uh, this is how we're built. That does not, uh, by, by that, I'm not saying that we should suffer in vain. We should definitely do something about it, but we need to contextualize our feelings in a way that is more realistic, I think. And that's where this biological perspective comes in. I think it's, you know, even the way that you were speaking there, you can tell that you've, you've spoken to people who have a lot of mental health issues and, and, and you have a lot of empathy. And I think that's that's a structure in, in the whole work, uh, in, in the whole of your work, which is that you shift the blame from the self and from like, you know, I should choose joy, not fear, and I should think positive to the brain, you know, and it's not my fault. It's it's my brain doing its thing. And I think that that is, that is also a, a counterbalance to a lot of popular wellness, which does put the blame on individuals. Do you think that your work as a psychiatrist and, and, and speaking to people has, has given you that empathy where maybe if you're just looking at the facts, you can, you can sort of hammer at people a little bit further? Do, do you think that, that shift of blame is important? I think it's very important. And when I have a patient with anxiety, the first thing I tell them is that anxiety is normal and hell at the same time. And I also tell them that 
half of all humans died before they became teenagers. And we are the descendants of the humans who did not die before they became teenagers. You and I and everyone who's watching and all my, all my patients have behind them a long line, an unbroken line of survivors. And those survivors did not survive cardiovascular disease or cancer or stroke, which is what, kill, which, which, which is what, what kills us today, but they survived infections, bleeding, murder, starvation, and accidents. And that was a very, very dangerous world that they had to survive. And that means that the ones who saw danger everywhere, who prepared for the worst, they probably had better chances of survival. And seeing danger everywhere, well, that's what we call anxiety today. And since the ability to be anxious and or where we are on an anxious spectrum, that comes in from 40% uh, of that is determined from your genes when you're born. Now, from this perspective, you realize that it's not strange that people have anxiety. What is strange is that there are people who don't have anxiety, and maybe they should be diagnosed. And when you tell it to a patient, they realize, some of them at least, that I am not damaged. I am not broken goods. And that is very important because we are constantly looking for a story or a role that explains not only the world to us, but that explains ourselves to us. And if we see ourselves as damaged goods, as broken, that is very, very toxic. So the way you contextualize anxiety or a depressive episode is very important of, of how you experience it. So, so uh, therefore, I think this biological perspective is important. And a lot of self-help books sells this myth that you should know, just pull yourself up or choose happiness or whatever. And that sounds nice, but it's not that simple. You know, Mother Nature is much more powerful. She creates much more powerful mechanisms in us than those that can be fooled around by simple cliches. If it was that simple to trick anxiety, anxiety wouldn't be there for the, in the first place because it would never fulfill its purpose, which is to help us survive. So uh, I think sometimes that this um, positive uh, thinking this optimism has a coolness, almost sinister coolness in it, because it, it, it presents the solution as something that you have to achieve yourself. And if you don't do that, then you're worthless, basically. If you try to, to say to someone who's very anxious, just feel happy, that's not going to work. And then they're just going to feel worthless. So um, I'm not saying that this positive thinking isn't important. It could be important, too. It, it's where you... Where, where you stress the balance, so to speak. So a biological perspective is um, takes away some of the stigma. It makes people kinder to themselves, in my experience. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code 
HOWTO, just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. It's so wonderful to hear you speak so passionately about it, and I think it's it's absolutely a perspective that's so needed. I think to go back to the model of shifting the blame from the self to the brain, can we push it further, right? Can we push from the brain to specific actors? You spoke there about the people who are buying your attention, the marketers, the social media companies, big data, arguably poorly informed politicians as well, who are allowing this to go on. You know, who are the people who we should we should be sort of holding to account? And, you know, we can't just blame kids for being on their phones, right? There are There are people who are profiting off it who should we be thinking about there yeah that's that, that's a great question and and uh, i i think that social media companies are partly to blame these are incredibly complex issues of course but for instance face the, the, there's been a discussion whether social media is harmful for our well-being and it's been very hard to study that and why is that well that's because no one wants to quit you know, you can't say to someone, give us your phone for two months and then we'll see what happens because no one wants to handle in their phone. So it's very hard to do these studies. But it turned out uh, in 2021 that, that a whistleblower reported to, uh, to Wall Street Journal that Facebook's own researchers knew that Instagram uh, made a third of teenage girls look negatively on their own body. And in, in about 10% of the cases where teenagers had suicide thoughts, they could be traced to Instagram. Now, these researchers at Facebook, they had access to data that external researchers could only dream of. And they warned about this to the senior management. And the senior management did not just ignore these warnings. They actively hid them from the public. And that is a disgrace, I think. A whole generation hundreds of millions of individuals in their most vulnerable part of their lives when they're teenagers, they, their lives is playing out on a platform, a big part of their lives, and the platform doesn't care whether it's safe or not. I mean, that's just, that's horrendous, I think. And there was some um, Snapchat launched uh, AI friend recently. And this was pre uh, earlier this year. And as you, in Snapchat, you could chat with your friends, but they launched an AI friend and you could launch, you could talk with this virtual uh, artificial intelligence uh, friend. And it sounds very harmless, right? You could talk about whatever and they could tell you to uh, read your homework or go to bed or whatever. It sounds nice. Well, it just took a couple of hours before this was released, before people started to discover that you could ask this AI friend how to have sex with a 30-year-old man if you're a 13-year-old girl. And it would give you advice. And it, you, you could ask it, well, I'm 13 years old and I've smoked a lot of dope. And I, want, I don't want my mom to see so, or, or discover that. So how should I wash my, my shirt to make sure it doesn't smell? And it was, they were given advice. Now, Snapchat warned, they seem to have suspected this. So they warned that the AI friend could hallucinate and that these things could happen. So, so they were trying to put the, you know, say, don't blame us about this. But the thing is that if they had just spent a month or two more on security work, they could have fixed this. Why didn't they? Well, I think that's because they were in such a hurry to jump on the AI bandwagon because artificial intelligence has been so hot that they didn't care. They put the money before the safety of teenagers and they rolled out this product to hundreds of millions of individuals. 
And I, 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 as you probably remember, Facebook had a, um, a saying that move fast and break things. And this is exactly it. They moved fast and they broke teenagers. So, so it, it, it shows that it's a very sinister world where profit always comes before safety. When I read about these cases and when I read about how much teenagers and adults, for that matter, spend on social media, I think of experiments that was conducted by a a biologist from Holland called Nicolas Tinbergen. And he got the Nobel Prize uh, in the 60s, I think. Uh, But he made discoveries in the the 1940s where he took took seagulls, the bird uh, seagull. And the seagulls have on their beak a red dot. Now, when the, the newly born seagulls, they pick on the beak, on the red dot on the beak for, on the parent, because that signals that they want food, and the parent gives them food. What Tinbergen did was he took a pencil, and then he drew a big red circle on that pencil. And that circle was bigger and redder than the one, the one that the parent had on their beak. And he held this pencil in the nest, and the younglings picked on the pencil even though they were hungry, and even though, of course, the pencil could not provide them with food, and even though the parent was in the nest. Now, Tinbergen called this a super stimuli. It's a stimuli that is so strong that it overrides what nature has provided. And I think that so many things in today's society are super stimuli. Candy is super stimuli. There is nothing as sweet in nature as candy. There is nothing that contains so much calories as candy does. Candies are basically super fruits. And when we eat them, our brain, which is wired for survival and starvation, thinks, this is awesome. I have run upon the best tree on the savanna. Eat everything. And then we feel an urge to eat all of it, of course. And the same thing, the same logic can be applied to to our digital technologies. They are super stimuli. There is nothing so rewarding in in nature. And that makes it very, very difficult for us to put them down. And when we try to put them down and we can't, we blame ourselves. We feel worthless. So part of the problem is, of course, to, to what you can do for yourself. But part of the problem is these companies have not taken responsibility and what can we do about that? Well, we could do what you and I are doing right now. We're having a discussion about it. We're raising awareness of it. These companies have become the infrastructure of society. They are the bridges that we, like the bridges that we, that we drive or walk across. They're the buildings that we live in. And we have a lot of regulation when it comes to buildings and bridges and cars and so on. But for these companies, we don't have any regulation. And that's very, very strange. It's honestly spine-chilling to hear you speak so angrily and passionately about it. I think it's absolutely the energy that we should all have. Just a, a brief thing. Uh, Oppenheimer, obviously, in the in the cinemas at the moment. And you quote some developers of the iPad and developers of the iPhone. You know, they say they wake up in cold sweats thinking, what have we brought to the world? It feels very nuclear. These, these people know and they knew quite quite a while ago. And, and, and it feels as seismic as, as sort of a, a super bomb. But I want to go back. So you said uh, infrastructure... You know, it's like the infrastructure that we use. and But of course, infrastructure links to culture, right? There's no point in having bridges if you don't drive. And you compared just there the, the banana tree in the savannah. And um, in, the, in the book, you also talk about the comparison to McDonald's. And you say, well, of course, you know, the brain thinks the same. But those two things are, are very different because McDonald's is sanctioned by our culture. And it's, it, it must be sort of brains plus technology plus culture. There are really interesting 
the, the Chinese invented gunpowder and they made fireworks with it. They didn't make gunpowder. They didn't make um, guns. It took the Westerners to sort of use it and, and the culture of that to make violence. Our culture is also to blame here as well, right? We we allowed the technology to to become super stimuli. We could have rejected it. And I think we have to continue that, right? We have to continue yeah. that. That, that's a very good point. And I think you could re, you could compare it to the petro industry. It was known for at least at least 50 years, perhaps 80 years, that if we burn a lot of fossil fuels, we will fry the planet. We will have um, a greenhouse effect. Now, what did the petro industry do? Well, they hired a lot of lobbyists to make sure that this knowledge was, you know, fussed around. Ah, oh, maybe it's not so bad. Yada, 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 yada. And you have all these weeks. You can't say for sure whether it's a warming effect. Yada, yada. And then when it became reality, it was too late. It was already, you know, we were so attached to, to our fossil fuels that it was very, very difficult to turn around. And I think that you could make that comparison. Social media companies have spent an enormous amount of money on lobbying in order to make sure that they are not regulated. And that's just a shame. And now it's very, very difficult to take it away. Completely, completely. And um, so, so let's, let's, move, let's move back to the brain, because that is probably easier to, to understand than society as, as a whole. Um, you, you speak about how our brain is, is hardwired to be terrified of social exclusion. Um, and, you, and you draw that to both phobia of, of public speaking, but also of like not being in the, in the WhatsApp group, which seems so silly, but you, you give it a really good biological reason. Could you, could you speak about the science of that? Yeah. One of the most interesting discoveries during the last decades in medical science is how important or how dangerous loneliness is. And by loneliness, I don't mean a day or a week, but long-term loneliness. And though you also should add that our social needs differ. So if you can't measure loneliness any other way, then ask, do you feel lonely? And if you feel lonely, you are lonely. If you don't, you're not, so to speak. Now, it's been shown that long-term loneliness seems to be as dangerous as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It that doesn't only increase the risks of depression, that's uh, pretty obvious, but it also, it worsens your prognosis for all forms of cardiovascular disease. If you get a heart attack or cardiovascular disease, you're more likely to die uh, if you are lonely. Um, and we also know that it seems to affect the risks of some forms of cancer. But that is very strange. I mean, how could loneliness be, be dangerous? That it's boring, of course, that's one thing, but how could it be dangerous to the body? And the reason is probably that loneliness meant death for our ancestors. To be in a group, you were safe. By If you were isolated, you were gone. You would die. To be part of a group was as important as having food. Now, that means that the ones of our ancestors who had the most strongest drive to create and nurture social bonds with other humans, they had better chances of survival. They wanted to stay in the group, and they did, and they survived, and they passed on their genes, and we are the offspring of them. And that's why we want to stay in a group at all costs. So when we are experiencing a state of isolation or loneliness, we are in a state that historically, for almost all previous generations of humans, meant that you were going to die. No one could help you. And that, that then your stress system is turned up. Then you see more danger in the world. Uh, we know, for instance, that if you are isolated, you sleep more, um, you, you don't get as much deep sleep as you would otherwise. And that's very strange because you don't have anyone who's tossing and turning around in your bed. Why would your sleep be affected? And the reason is probably that the brain 
can't afford itself to have deep sleep because no one can wake it it's some, if something is happening. That's what I mean by that we are still biologically on the savanna, so to speak. So loneliness uh, is, very, it, 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 it's, it's very dangerous for us. And I think that our social needs, they evolved during not only hundreds of thousands, but millions of years when we met face to face. Because it's not just what we a face that we register. We register body language, posture, the way you know someone smells, touch, of course, and so on. And if we don't get those social signals, we risk feeling lonely. We could replace some of it by a screen, but not all of it. And I think we all felt that during COVID. Um, and we, what we have seen during the last decades is that more and more people are experiencing loneliness. And that is detrimental for, for their health, unfortunately. And I think this partly below is because that we are, have replaced meeting face-to-face to a screen. Absolutely. And to speak about COVID as well, you know, the difference between doctors online and, and in person is, is a huge thing. And I remember they, they, they were doing studies on why married people live longer. And some people believe it's simply just that if you have someone else in your house who has a health problem, you're more likely to go, go to the doctor, go to the doctor, like someone else will look after you, sometimes better than you look after yourself. And that's, that's an important thing to recognise, I think, in a world that's so individualist. And so you can do it yourself. Having people around physically, and whether they're friends, whether they're partners is, is life saving. Yeah, absolutely. And and what studies also have shown is that if you are lonely and isolated, you will start to experience people around you as more hostile. Neutral faces become slightly aggressive and slightly aggressive faces become more aggressive. And that's very dangerous. That's very strange. I mean, why would you perceive others as more hostile? That doesn't help you in, in your social to become to connect to people. And the reason is probably that when we are lonely, we are in a state that meant that no one could help us in our past. And then we have to see the world as more dangerous. So the brain amps up its, its, its preparedness for danger, so to speak. And in today's world, that means that we see others as more hostile. And to teach people about this, people who are experiencing isolation, that you will perceive others as more hostile or angry, and that's not because you are broken. That's because you function this way. That's a very important um, message to get to, to to break loneliness. It's it's been shown. So I, I think it, and, and for for the ones of us who don't experience loneliness, it's important to realize that someone who is a bit um, edgy or perhaps slightly uh, kind of angry or whatever towards us, maybe that's a symptom of loneliness. And and loneliness is. Regarding how, how big health effects it has, it's a huge low-hanging fruit in terms of public health. If everyone would just spend 30 minutes a week uh, by contacting or just calling, actually, someone who is lonely, that would make a huge difference. It would actually give people a longer life. So it's so important. So that, the, 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 the good, that, that's the good part of this equation. There was a study done during COVID where many experienced loneliness. Uh, and they had individuals who were very lonely. They were all between 20 and 100 years of age. That was a big spread. And then they were called three times a week, 10 minutes every time, by someone who just chatted about, you know, whatever. 
And after a couple of weeks, they felt less lonely. And you measured their loneliness on it by a score. And it, turned, it dropped quite substantially from just three telephones a week, 10 minutes every call. And those calls were not delivered by super psychologists. They were delivered by teenagers. And they had gotten training that can be summarized in a couple of sentences. Listen to the one you're talking to. Be interested in what he or she is saying. Uh, and let him or she decide the topic. That's it. So when you, you know, give your mom or uh, your, your dad or grandpa or whatever an extra phone call, you don't just make them a bit happier, you give them a longer life. It's so, as you said, it's so low-hanging fruit and might go back to what we talked about earlier about not really caring about feelings uh, as a society. And I think we really, we really have to. And So to go the complete flip, so loneliness and fear of people, our brains also are hardwired for curiosity. And you speak incredibly concisely about, about the sort of the dopamine drives and the fact that the word maybe puts us into a bit of a frenzy. And we, how do, how do apps and social media you know, hack that part of our, our brain. Yeah, that's, we, we are constantly, uh, we, we are extremely curious. And uh, Harvard uh, researchers has said that between the ages of two and four, every kid asks about 40,000 questions. I'm not sure whether where he got that number from, uh, but if that's correct, that means one question every 10 minutes, every waking hour. And everyone who has seen children in that age knows that they are very inquisitive. Now, why do they want to know so many things? Uh, why are they so curious? Well, not because it's, you know, it's interesting. The reason is that the more you know about the world, the better you can navigate in the world. And the world is not just lions and tigers and what have you. It's also humans. We are incredibly curious about each other. And that's because we need to navigate a social landscape. So that's certainly one a, a big drive. And the, the, another thing that I point out in this book is the dopamine system in our brain. And the dopamine system is not there to give us kicks. The dopamine system tells us what to focus on. So if I'm hungry and I see food, dopamine levels rises in my brain because, uh, because uh, it's telling me focus on that food. We also know that if I, if I see social information, I, dopamine levels in my brain because it's telling me get that information, learn about that. That's important to know. Now, what's interesting is that there's been studies done on rats and, and mice, and you, hear, you have them hear a tone, and the tone is followed by juice. Then you can see that in the brain of the animal, the dopamine is released when they hear the tone. So the tone is telling them to pay attention to this. Something is coming now. I have to focus on this. Now, if you have the tone followed by juice, sometimes, not every time, but sometimes in a random way, and preferably around 50% of, of, of every time you hear a tone, then dopamine rises more. The brain loves maybe. And that is very strange. Why would the brain tell you to focus more on an uncertain reward than a certain reward? That's actually very strange. And the reason is probably that almost everything in nature is stochastic. You do not know whether you will find fruits in the tree you climb. You do not know whether the hunt will be successful, and so on and so forth. And this is something that, that this is something that helped us to survive. It helped. It motivated us to seek out rewards that were uncertain in nature. And this mechanism in our brain is why we gamble. We know that we lose 
if we gamble a long time, but some have problems with it anyway. And that's just because the brain loves maybe. And this is also something that not just gaming companies, but social media companies have been very clever at exploiting. Because every time you post a fake picture on Facebook or Instagram or whatever, and your friends click thumbs ups or heart, you don't get to see those when your friends clicks the button. Facebook holds these and distributes them in a way to you so that you should want to go back and check again and again and again and again if there's a new like. Uh, and how do they know how to do that? Well, they have had uh, researchers uh, employed, but they more than that, they've had 3 billion users. So they could try different ways of distributing these digital likes. And when they find the most efficient ones, they roll it out to everyone. And that's just one of many, many, many examples of how mechanisms in our brains that are very powerful in driving our behavior and that once was, that helped us to survive are being Achilles heels in our modern societies. It's, I mean, it's, it's completely fascinating. And, and just all the way at the beginning, uh, I had an image of a Harvard scientist's like tally as he gets to 40,000. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very, very inquisitive child. Um, another thing that has been changed completely having read your book is just the notion that companies will put artificial loading screens um, to build suspense. I think that has, that has broken my internet uh, consumption. Yeah, there's so much sophistication behind all of this. Everything you see uh, on social media is very, very carefully thought out. And, and I mean, one, it, every time you go, you, you, you click on Facebook, an artificial intelligence in a $10 billion or 10 billion pound, you know, quality and 10,000 incredibly bright engineers are looking at you. And they are saying, okay, how should I make him not to log out? And I can use every trick in the book uh, because your time is their product. And of course, one of the things that we have seen played out is that we get information that makes us uh, afraid or angry because the brain wants to, to register those things. It's very important to be aware of danger, social danger. And that means that if 10 posts on uh, social media are like uh, I had a normal day whatever and one is I had a terrible day I had a fight with my boss then you're going to see that one because that's the one that you can't take your eyes from and when that is being played out on the whole planet we all go around and think that uh, we are we're getting more angry at each other we're spreading conspiracy theories uh, and so on and so forth uh, and so on and so forth and I think this has affected uh, us more uh, in, in that than we'd like to admit, actually, during the last years. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I completely agree. And it is, it's just, yes, we have to take back autonomy in some way. I want to just change tack completely and again, pick up on something that's really stuck with me, which is the link that you, you draw between depression and stress and infection and inflammation and immunity. Now, I've always wondered why I get 
pretty sad and also quite ill after stress and not during stress. That's always seemed counterintuitive, but you put it in yeah. a really interesting way. Could you just explain that? Yeah. So it, it's just like you said, I've seen that so many times in patients, they have severe periods of stress and then they finally go on vacation or they finally get to relax and then the depression kicks in. Then And, and they wonder, why is that? I mean, now it's all over. And I've, we, we can't really say for sure why, why that is, but a probable reason is that stress meant that you were in lethal danger for almost our entire time on the planet. And if you are stressed all the time, that if, if you're stressed constantly, that means that you are in a very dangerous world. And eventually the brain will just say, you should avoid this world. And how should you avoid it? Well, it downregulates your mood and drive and everything feels worthless. We also know that there's a link between inflammation and depression. And inflammation is basically the body's response to every uh, effect on it. If I do like this, I have a small inflammatory response here. If I have a heart attack, I have an inflammatory response. So it's it's the, 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 the body's response to a lot of dim, different stimuli. And one of the things that it's a response to, it's bacterial effect, infection and virus infections. If you have an infection, you have an strong inflammatory response in your airways, for instance, if you have COVID. Now, when I went to med school 23 years ago, I was told that the inflammation in your airways can signal to the body that I have an inflammation, I have to, you know, I have to rest and so on. I have to be cautious with my energy because it costs having an immune system going at full speed. But that's this is what they said. The inflammation could never signal to the brain that the, the, the signal from the, information, from the inflammation cannot get into the brain. But that has been show, shown to be uh, wrong. The brain, the signals from the inflammation goes into the brain and it down-regulates our mood. And that makes sense because when you are having an infection, uh, you're inflammatory, you, you, you need to have, to have an immune system going at full speed and then you can't waste your energy doing other things. Then you need to rest, so to speak. So this all makes sense, but the problem is that in today's world, we also get inflammation from sitting too much. We get it from sleep, not sleeping enough. We get it from stress. We get it from processed food. And the brain can't distinguish whether this inflammation comes from an infection or if it comes from our lifestyle. And it responds by down-regulating mood and drive. Uh, and thereby, I think our modern lifestyle is tapping into a, an, another of these defense mechanisms that helps us survive, uh, but the, and, and that we pay a price for that in terms of our well-being. And if you think this is, sounds speculative, I mean, that, then you are smart. You realize that, that that's a very good point. But the link between inflammation and depression is now very, very strong in science. Numerous studies have shown exactly this. So we need to look at depressions, not just from the perspective of what's happening in our social life and our psychology, but also from what's happening in our bodies and our physiology. And when you learn more about this, the advice that everyone has heard about sleep and about exercise and so on, they become much more substantial. They go from being a cliche to something that you really want to, to prioritize because you understand the, the logic of it. You understand how it affects your body and indirectly how your brain is interpreting what's happening in the body. 
I think it's such an important point. I think there's such a sort of Cartesian dualism between body and mind in science, and to see it more holistically is 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 such an important thing. Um, I you, you segued perfectly onto what I wanted to talk about in the last sort of 10, 15 minutes, which is some practical tips, um, both to mainly to, to 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 have slightly better attention and and also maybe to to have some some happiness boost as well. The, the first question and the first uh, practical tip that I've seen in the comments and, and the Q and A a little bit is to have less screen time, to, to, to be less addicted to your phone. Um, but that comes with a problem, right? It comes with the parent who says, if I limit my kids screen time, they'll lose out on friends or, you know, it's, it's much cheaper than hiring a babysitter to give them an iPad. You know, how practically can we go about little ways of, of decreasing screen time, both in ourselves and maybe for kids? Well, I, I, I don't have kids myself. So, I, and I see my friend's kids with, how what what hell this can be you know when they bring this up they the they kids get furious and that by itself i think shows how incredibly addictive these technologies are and i think going back to what i said about the nicotinebergen and the the the, the, um, the birds who picked uh, the red dot that these are super stimulized and we can't have them around all the time it's just not possible it's really as simple as I can't have candy in my apartment. I will eat it. It's just too too seductive. And therefore, I think we need to create a distance to technology. We should not have it in the bedroom if we have any problem sleeping at all. We should not have it in the classroom. We should not have it in the meeting room and so on. Because it's it really, it's, it's grabbing our attention. Uh, and, and for instance, there's been studies done where you have students doing tests for memory and focus, and some of them bring their phones into the classroom and some of them they leave it outside, and the ones who leave it outside perform better. And that's very strange because the ones who bring it in doesn't even pick it up from the pocket. It's just grabbing your attention from being in the pocket. And the reason is probably that it's providing you with so much rewards, so much dopamine, that you constantly have to think, I should not pick up my phone. I should not pick up my phone. I should not pick up my phone. And then that takes some of your mental bandwidth. And that doesn't make a big difference if you're doing something very trivial. But if you're focusing, if you're studying and so on and so forth, I think it makes a difference. And, and in, there was a study in Norway that came out just a couple of weeks ago that showed that 81% of, all, uh, of everyone below 30 thought that they spent too much time on their phone. And that's, that, that's a big increase. So teenagers and young adults and everyone is realizing that these technologies are so addictive and we should not really blame ourselves because it's too, it's too tough, basically. And I, I, I don't know what advice to give to parents other than create distance to it a couple of hours every day, at least. I don't think there is any way around that. And if, if you want to, to tell a teenager how to not, not to smoke... Then you shouldn't, and you provide him or her with data on how dangerous it is in terms of lung cancer, emphysema, and so on. That doesn't work. You don't care about that when you're in your teens because you think you're immortal. But what does work is to say to them that tobacco companies, they don't care about you. They don't care if you live or die. They just want your money. They make addictive products so that they could squeeze every single buck out of you. And whether you are healthy or not, they couldn't care less. And I think that you could use the same logic in terms of Snapchat. They don't care about you. They don't care if you, if, whether you will meet a 30-year-old man who will exploit you sexually or whatever. They couldn't care less about that. So by presenting in that way, you could sort of raise that inner rebel. And some kids might say that, I'm not going to let these companies take my sleep away. I'm not going to let them 
exploit me, so to speak, to, to make money. So maybe that's a better strategy. But apart from that, I'm, I don't know. I love the reverse psychology. That's that's, that's thinking in, in teen brain. I suppose another simple thing is just writing to your member of parliament or politicians or, or local people just to make sure that if there is legislation coming up, I know that the EU is thinking about it, um, just sort of holding, holding companies to account. But um, I, another really important feature of all of your work is exercise. And, and Carl in the comments has has asked, you know, how, how do I exercise if I haven't got the best body? It isn't, you know, you don't have to go to the gym for four hours a day, right? You, you, it's not it's not super intense exercise that makes a difference. Exactly. So ex exercise is incredibly important for the brain. And the brain actually seems to be the organ that benefits most from, from exercise, which is very strange. But we know that exercise improves all our cognitive functions. It makes us more creative. It makes us more more uh, focused it improves our memory and it even seems to affect intelligence actually somewhat and this is strange you know why would the brain benefit from these things and the probable reason is that the brain as i said it hasn't changed during the last 10,000 years when did it have to reach its peak capacity for almost all, all previous generations well that was when we moved that's when we saw new things that we had to remember that's when we needed our creativity the most during the hunt and so on so the fact that the brain benefits from exercise makes it exercise from our perspective a way to hack evolution, I think. Because if the brain would have been built for today's world, it would have its peak capacity in front of a computer or Zoom meeting, but it doesn't. It works at its peak when I'm out running, which is very strange, but that's just the way it is. And that's, but that's because it was, uh, that's when we needed these capacity the most. We also know that exercise protects us against depression. And for that, you don't need to run. Even one hour of fast walking every week reduces your risk of depression somewhat. And if you move more, you get a bigger risk reduction. So exercise is incredibly important for mood stabilization. And you should not mix exercise with participation in sports, in athletics and so on. Exercise has nothing to do with that. Exercise is riding your bike to work or walking to work or walking in stairs or take, instead of taking the elevator. And, and this is very important to know because we are lazy by nature. And the re why are we lazy by nature? Well, that's because almost all previous generations of humans died of starvation. And that meant that we should eat all the calories we should find, but we should not move if we don't really have to. So we are lazy by nature, and that is something that we sort of have to overcome. And I, uh, my strategy that has worked is to try to build it into my life in a way that I don't make a conscious decision every time. You know, I don't make a decision whether I should brush my teeth every, in, the, in the evening or in the morning. I just do that. And I, and that, and I think you should look at exercise the same way. It's something that you should build into your life so you don't have to negotiate with a lazy part of yourself because that lazy part of yourself is very strong and for a good reason. Saving calories helped us survive. And crucially, the lazy part of yourself, the lazy part of your brain is not the lazy you and, and you have you have a lot of autonomy there. A absolutely. And I mean, of, of course, it's not, uh, this is not the question of black and white, but you, one shouldn't be too hard on oneself because one doesn't like to run. Uh, because if we could tell our ancestors that we go for a run and then we come back to the same place without achieving anything, and then we lift heavy things into the air and put them down, 
you know, they would say, you're crazy to, to do something like that must have been as stupid as throwing food into the ocean. So we're constantly fighting an uphill battle here when it comes to exercise. Voluntary exercise is tough. Uh, and, I, and, and it should be tough because that helped us to survive. And I think of that when I'm lying in the couch sometimes that, you know, I'm not going to let my genes or my hunter-gatherer brain or something like that decide, decide, letting it decide what to do. I'm going to fight against it. And I'm not saying it works all the time. It doesn't. But sometimes it actually puts my, makes me put my sneakers on and then go for a run just to, to, to show who's in charge, so to speak. It's funny. It's not even that far away in our ancestors. I, I remember reading that the first joggers were arrested because people were so weirded out by why we were jogging down the street. It, it looked like they'd just committed a crime and they were running away. It is a very weird thing to do if, if you think about it for more than three or four minutes. Yeah, it is. And I, I was in Kenya this uh, this spring and, and I was I got to spend time with a group of hunters and gatherers, which was just fabulous. And I asked them, do you ever go for a run? And they were they, they said, you know, yes, when we're hunted by a predator, we have to run. And I was like, yes, of course. Sure. But apart from that, and they didn't really understand the question. Why would we run? So it it is very, very strange for us to exercise. But these people who, uh, who lived in, in Kenya, they take on average 18,000 steps per day. And they were just a model of health. Uh, they have been studied and they don't have any cardiovascular disease, almost. They don't have any hypertension. Diabetes is something that we, one hasn't seen. And remember, these are people who don't have access to any health care at all. They don't have any... Uh, doctors or any medication or anything and they still they, they were very very healthy and they seem from what I could tell even though that's difficult they seemed very very uh, they seemed to be feeling well all of them they were not having a lot of anxiety the kids were playing and um, playing soccer and you know everyone seemed happy basically and I when I went there I had this feeling that okay they I felt a bit sorry for them because they don't have modern societies, they don't have TVs, they don't have hospitals or school. And when I, I could not help feeling that, and when I went to when I went back to Sweden, I thought it's not them I should feel sorry for. It's us. What are we doing to ourselves? That was the big takeaway from that trip. It's it's Rousseau and Hobbes all over again. Um, final final question from Al, who says to play devil's advocate. Um, what about all the positives in social media? Activism, solidarity, being anonymous in potentially dangerous environments. Um, could you maybe speak about you know how to do social media in a good way and how to do it in a bad way? Right. You, you speak about the difference between individual and communal social media in the book. Could you just go into that a little bit? Yeah. I mean. Of course, uh, modern technology and, and social media can help us. There's no question about that. So I'm, I'm not uh, a Luddite in any way. But uh, what I am against is this business model where basically just our eyeballs on the screen is what's counting. Social media could have been designed in a way that makes us connect in real life. And then it becomes less addictive. It could have been designed in a way so that it tells me, oh, you've been on for too long. And then all of these technologies that I've told you about, how they distribute likes and all that stuff, 
that is downregulated. So it's so, so it looks very boring after a while because it's has it focuses on on how how I, I should feel as good as possible, not that I should spend as much time on it as possible. And I think these companies they make they want to push this narrative that it's pro or against tech. That's not the narrative. It's pro user or pro company. If we want products that are more in line with how we function, then we will get that. And we should not adapt to technology. Technology should adapt to us. A brilliant way of ending. I, I hope, as, as, as I have been, you, listener, is, are inspired and, and excited and obviously daunted by the challenge, but I think we can do it. Um, just a final message. Uh, in all of your work, you say, you know, if it gets really bad, do go and seek help. You know, there's no intrinsic worth and no value of being anxious or unwell. Um, that's a really important thing to remember, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And uh, seeking help is a sign of strength. But I, I would, I've always asked about this advice. And my main advice, apart from that, is that learn more about the brain because it's incredibly interesting. You will learn more about yourself. And you will eventually change behaviors when you realize how you are built under the hood. And it's, as I said, all, as I said, it takes away stigma uh, and it makes you more forgiving to yourself. And uh, it's certainly been that way for me and for many of my patients. And that's what I've been trying to convey in these books. Anders, thank you so much. What a wonderful conversation. And thank you for your books. Please, uh, everyone, go and check them out. Uh, they are available in all good bookstores as of today. Uh, have a lovely evening. Thank you, everyone, for your questions. And thank you again, Anders. Thank you. My pleasure. This episode starred Anders Hansen and was produced and presented by Luke Naylor Perrett. I make the show with Esme Bright and Nicole Wong, and our editor is John Doughty. We have loads more experts on health and well-being ready to watch for free as part of our membership program, How To Plus. Take out a subscription with the code POD50, P-O-D-5-0, and you'll get it for half price, forever. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>